Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You're listening to This Little Light, a podcast about falling in love with music, hosted by me, Flea, and produced by Cadence 13 and Parallel. Once again, I have the privilege of speaking with an old friend, someone I've known for a long, long time, Jewel Culture. The buffalo is the only animal that moves into the heart of a storm, and I wanted to be the buffalo. That ethos is what started my creative journey. It wasn't that I thought I'd be a professional creator. It's just that, that my writing was my only my only medicine. I knew her before she got a record deal, before she blew up, before she had her hits. She was sleeping in her van. And um, I had gone through a thing where just right after I kind of got real famous, I got real sick. I got chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, I was falling apart at the seams, and I didn't know what was the matter with me. And, I ended up going down to this place in San Diego called the Optimum Health Center. You know, it was really difficult for me for a variety of reasons. I, I don't, I'll spare you all the medical insanity. But while I was down there, I meet this girl. She's 17. She's um, living in her car, and she was sneaking in there because they had food, and she would go there to get the free food. And um, her name was Jewel. She had come from Alaska. She was an aspiring folk singer, and um, she just had a, a remarkable spirit. And we became friends, and we remained friends. I love her. She's consistently an awesome human being. In our conversation, we talk about <laughs> we talk about her childhood. We talk about her growing. We talk about her learning. We talk about her family. We talk about her the things that inspire her, the dysfunction, the pain, all the things she was exposed to, like playing in clubs when she was a kid. The, you know, seeing a bunch of people drunk and on drugs, and seeing seeing people who are very self destructive and learning from good things and learning from seeing people do really, you know, hurting themselves. And, uh, you know, her whole evolution from, from a kid with nothing to a pop star to a soulful mama who keeps on keeping on and um, care for her very much. And here we come, Jewel. Lily? Ah, you look so beautiful. You look amazing as ever. I'm so glad to see your face. I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> I just woke up. It's crazy. Like, normally I'm up at, like, when I'm home, I'm up at 7, you know? I just got back yesterday at, like, 4 in the morning. I got home from two and a half months of being gone on tour. And I'm just, like, I Wiped couldn't. I, like, I slept 12 hours, and I couldn't get out of bed. I yeah. was like, uh, uh, like, you know, like a fucking worm emerging from the Sahara Desert. 
I know the feeling. It's hard to describe how physical tour is, especially you guys. You guys are exuding so much energy and your body keeps it all together somehow. And it's so rigorous. Just the lifestyle of touring is so rigorous. The buses and the sleeping and then you get home and your body's like, I'm going to shut down. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to tell her. I'm like, you got a gig tomorrow. <laughs> and amazingly, we get you there is what's shocking. <laughs> I know. I think of all the times you're like, I can't. I cannot. I lost, you know, I'm sure for you, your voice, yeah. you know, whatever, like all of it. And then when time comes. There it is. It's like, you know, sink or swim. So nice to see you, Jewel. So nice to see you. Yeah. I haven't seen you in a long time. I know. Last time I saw you, I think we had some food. Well, I guess since this is official podcast, might as well start by saying people probably don't know that we have been friends for, I think, about 30 years. Yeah. And that's so nice. I, and, and honestly, like just seeing your face pop up, like your little face on this screen, it makes me realize that you're one of those rare people that if I don't see you for you know, five years, and I see you, it's like I saw you yesterday. You're my sister. You're my brother. Yeah, no, I love you, Jewel. I feel the same way. I've always I've always felt that way with you. Just had such a strong kinship and connection and just always felt like I really saw your heart and being able to know you over 30 years and see how you've brought your heart into the world, especially from where you came from, from where I came from. I just feel like it's something we really share. Yeah, it's nice. So. This podcast that I'm doing is, you know, my, I have this music school that I've been running for, we just had our 20 year anniversary. We teach like 800 kids a week. Yeah. And so it's specifically about music education and, and I've been talking to different people about it and everyone's is so different. It's wild, you know? And so I guess my, my first question to you is. When were you first aware of music? What did it do to you? What did you think it was? Like your first impressions of music and how it affected you and what did it trigger inside of you? I came from a musical family. My grandmother had been an aspiring opera singer and poetess in Europe. Uh, They were in Germany. There was a group of artists. um, And my grandfather had this theory that when civilizations hit a certain population index, that they fail. And he was convinced that Europe as a continent was near failure. And so he talked to like 30, 40 artists, philosophers, painters, all into this theory and talked them all into leaving Europe. And so he went ahead as a scout to find land in Alaska. And everybody agreed that for two years, they would learn a skill, um, you know, log cabin making, herbology, medicine, etc. So they could go live off the land in Alaska and form this utopian artistic colony. Um, My grandfather made it up there, but the war started to break out and uh, Hitler became a problem. And nobody could get a visa uh, ultimately to come with my grandfather, except for one woman, my grandmother. And her boyfriend couldn't get the visa, but she decided she wanted to have kids in a free country. And she believed in art and artistry and the individuality and being close to nature. And so she decided to marry this man that she hardly knew because she really believed in a different lifestyle than what was happening in Europe. So that's the environment I was born into. She taught all of her eight children in Alaska to write and to sing and to write poetry Um, They all paint, they all sculpt. They're all just 
phenomenally talented and they were raised without televisions, without electricity, without roads, without anything. And so the creativity was just their entertainment, their own creativity. And I was raised on that homestead. Um, my whole family sang. So remembering music's kind of impossible. My whole family always sang at every family gathering in multiple languages. Folk songs were our, you know, prayers before meals. Um, it was just part of my life since the earliest memories I have. Awesome. It's just, just like breathing, like drinking water. Just your life, just music, art, yeah. theater, creativity, and in community, too as part of a family gathering, which is so cool. I often, you know, when I, I'll see like old films or read in books about how before record players or radios, people entertain themselves with music by virtue of, uh, you know, little groups, little chamber groups, whoever could play, got together and played, and that's how people entertain themselves. And that's basically what you guys were doing, right? I mean, that's so beautiful. What a, an awesome grounding. When you started doing that, was there a point where you started thinking, oh, okay, so or, this is just what I do, but now I want to take it in another direction in my own way? Because certainly you found your own style and your own aesthetic and your own concept of what you wanted to do individually. I mean, you're a solo artist. Yeah. Um, one thing I really loved about my childhood was... I didn't love it at the time, like not having a television when other kids in town had television. You know, that wasn't so cool. Not having running water or electricity, uh, you know, wasn't so cool at the time. But obviously, in hindsight, it forced me to be hyper creative to uh, relate to myself and for entertainment. And it wasn't intimidating. The beauty about everybody in my family doing it was there was nothing intimidating about it. Everybody had permission. It wasn't about being good. Certainly wasn't about being a professional. It was just sort of like the same way you might play tic-tac-toe or, you know, hopscotch or something like that. It was just a very unintimidating thing. And so I began to relate to the world um, as a writer, I think, from a really young age. And my dad was a professional musician. Um, he really picked up where my grandmother left off. And my mom and dad had a show in a hotel for tourists. It was a dinner show. So like the cruise ships would come into Anchorage. Um, we lived in Anchorage at this point. And the tourists would all come in, like boatloads of Japanese tourists. And my mom and dad did the sort of very Alaska variety show. And they showed footage of homesteading and this very unique Alaskan experience. And I would get up and I would uh, yodel, I think, was the first thing I ever did with them. And, it, you know, it definitely like I was uh, very attracted to the puzzle. I think that's what really got me was the puzzle of how do I get my voice to do this? Um, my dad was like, you're too young to learn how to yodel. Your throat hasn't developed enough yet, which, of course, for me was apparently the golden key to get me to do anything and say I'm incapable. <laughs> 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 and so I started practicing in private, you know, as a five year old it's not cute to hear anybody learn to yodel. It's one of the most unattractive sounds you can make. It's barely attractive when you're good at it, but when you're learning, it's really unattractive. Um, and so I kind of debuted it when I finally learned how to control that crack in my voice. Um, and so that was the first thing I would do in the family show was I was the little yodeler as a five-year-old. I was very shy. I didn't really, I wasn't a ham. You know, I wasn't the kind of kid that would get on stage and be like, I wasn't pageanty. I was pretty, very introverted. Being on stage, um, I was compelled because like this puzzle, I loved figuring it. I loved practice. I was obsessed with practicing. 
And then it was like the inevitable conclusion was like you would go on stage to kind of show it, but it was it was never the part I loved the most. It was for some reason the practice that I loved the most. It was the the puzzle and then listening to my mom and dad practice harmonies was fascinating that you could do that and trying to you know trying to learn to train your ear to hear a harmony and ignore the melody but also hear the melody and blend with it. I found that just really interesting and so me out of, you know, my brothers also sing, uh, but I was kind of that one that was just for some reason really driven to practice. And then my parents in the off seasons would go to the Arctic up, you know, in northern Alaska, and we would tour through Inuit villages, um, all the native villages, uh, and we would just go through to entertain them. And so a lot of my young musical memories are being on dog sleds and, you know, being dropped off on a ski plane and dog sleds picking us up and being hosted by an Inuit family and just the food and how warm and reciprocal the cultures were. Like if you dance or if you sang for them, they had to reciprocate. You know, you would then go to their community room and they would dance for you and they would sing for you and they would feed you. It was an incredible thing. And then my mom and dad got divorced and my my dad took over raising us in Homer, Alaska. And that's where I started really in earnest doing full time. It wasn't just one song. I think by the when I was eight, my dad and I became a duet. And so he was paying me. Um, I can't remember what, but he would pay me, you know, pretty decent, you know, anywhere from 50 to 200 bucks, you know, by the time I was a little older. I mainly sang harmony. Um, he did write songs. It was a lot of cover songs. You know, we did five hour sets in bars. You know, every hour you took a 10 minute break. Um, lots of rehearsing during the day. My dad was not, you know, he was a taskmaster. He was pretty hard to work for and with. But I loved it. There was something about that puzzle that fascinated me. And I, again, I didn't think I'd be a professional musician. I'd say my dad's approach was kind of a blue collar approach. You know, we just, we, he made a living bar singing. We were the act. You would go into a restaurant and you'd, while you were talking and eating dinner, we'd be in the background playing music or just bars, tons of bars all over Alaska. Um, And then by the time I moved out at 15, it still hadn't dawned on me that I would be doing this for a living. It was sort of just, it was just a way I got to get by. Um, but at the same time, writing had begun to be how I healed emotionally. It began to be how I tried to handle pain and the confusion um, of the divorce. My dad was abusive. He was an alcoholic. And seeing in bars how many people were medicating and that I could see it was all pain. Everybody was trying to handle pain and nobody knew what to do with pain. And I got a front row seat to people drinking pain away and doing drugs to get the pain away and having sexual, like crazy relationships to get the pain away and rage. And I remember just thinking how odd, like none of us are taught what to do with pain. I just remember at like nine or 10 saying, I'm never going to drink and I'm never going to do drugs and I'm going to try and write and I'm going to try and understand what do I do with pain and handle pain as it comes. And the buffalo is the only animal that moves into the heart of a storm. And I wanted to be the buffalo. And so that was, you know, I had like these weird little mottos I started to try and live by and I'd write them down. And one was you can't outrun pain. And two was be the buffalo. And that ethos is what started my creative journey. It, it wasn't that I thought I'd be a professional creator. It's just that my writing was my only, um, my only medicine. You know, I knew that when I wrote, it relieved that pressure. So you were conscious at that young age that writing words and playing music 
was a healthy way to process pain and to understand it and to live with the inevitable pain that we all have um, as all like holistically, you know what I mean? And actually having it be an energy that is healthy, which is, but you know, it's just hard. Is that like, because I, I feel like, like I can't help when I'm listening to you echo my own story. You know what I mean? But completely different. I'm like in Hollywood with also abusive drunken father figure and seeing him go around playing bars and stuff and thinking, Oh, this is a good job. But it's been the same thing. Like no idea of being famous. Just like you could go in a place and there's a bunch of guys in there and you play and they, they'll, they'll pay you, (laughs) you know, but I knew that it made me feel good to play music, but I didn't have the mental bandwidth to understand that I was processing pain in a healthy way. I just knew it felt good, you know? And, but you sounds like you really did know, like, that's incredible that you had that. I mean, did you? I don't think I knew the word healthy. I didn't know the word coping mechanisms. I just knew that there was like a menu of options. And what I was seeing people do in the bars didn't work. And I noticed when I wrote, my body felt better. I could, yeah. you know, I had a real visceral sense that it was like a pressure cooker and the steam did get let off. And I had a real experience of feeling better. Yeah. And it made it manageable. It made the anxiety or the depression or the terror manageable. And that was enough for me, you know, that. And I learned things when I wrote, especially poetry. I learned things. I saw patterns that I didn't notice that I saw before. And that was really empowering, you know, as a scared young girl to be like, wait a minute. Like when I write, I connect into something else and there's something wiser guiding me. And I was able to feel that. Connecting to a bigger divine picture. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Jewel talks about her town banding together to send her to Michigan's Interlochen Music Academy and how she made quite the impression when she arrived on campus. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. So let me ask you this to go back and you're playing songs with your dad and, you know, you start performing and you go from yodeling on to other types of music. You start dealing with different musical structures, you know, uh, verses, choruses, bridges. How aware were you of the mechanics of music? Like, did you know what an octave meant? Did you know what a major scale was, a minor scale was? Did you understand that certain chords strung together created tension or release or, you know, whatever? Yeah. Like, was there any sort of that sort of education or were you just, was it all by intuition and feel? Yeah, I didn't have formal education. My dad didn't either. Um, So it was all just sort of off the feel. I didn't play guitar either for any of this. So I was just a, I was a harmony singer. You know, I I think I might have sung lead on one song. Yeah. I do feel grateful and believe that, you know, we covered so many great songs. You know, I would play all the great songs, you know, that you sing in bars. Everything from the Eagles to Elvis to Jim Croce to just you name it, Bob Dylan. But I'd never heard the real artist. I'd never heard Elvis sing <laughs> But I sang the songs every night. It really wasn't until I was 19 or 20 that I actually ever heard the original artist do them. Right. And I have to guess that 
singing so many great songs taught me a real innate sense for structure. Um, but and I knew the word chorus, right? I knew the word bridge and those types of things, but I wasn't taught chords or even a third. I didn't know what a third harmony was. I just knew mm. how to sing harmony. Um, and to this day, like if I record harmonies in the studio for myself, I'm switching. And it creates a sound, but I don't know how yeah. to necessarily stick to a third. I'll switch from a third to a fifth back down. And then when I'm layering yeah. my parts, I'm like, shit, now I have to swap from the and create it all backwards because I'm layering know, harmony. But you know, because I've been in the studio with you and seen you sing like really close, almost dissonant harmonies that are super like it sounds like you know, Charles Ives or something, like some really, you know, not normal pop harmonies. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't know. Like, I can't, not sure if you know, like the, the academic language for that stuff, but you have an ear that is very attuned to being able to pick out harmonies and knowing what you want to and what an harmony will create in terms of the, the structure of music. Is that something you've developed over time? Do you feel like you were able to in, intuit that at a young age? Um, I think it probably came really just intuitively. Um, yeah. It, you know, you like the sound of it. I, you know, I, I never, yeah, you know, I think a lot of artists are that way, but it just comes from inside you and I don't know what to call it. I don't know the name of it, but I can hear it in my head and I can get my voice to do it. Yeah. And also as a youngster, I wonder how conscious you were. Cause for me, like when I was around, I mean, I always loved being in nature, you know, but it wasn't until I was, you know, whenever I would, I would be like, you know, end up in the mountains or, you know, beach or anywhere, I would always feel um, much more uh, attuned to myself and much more likely to make wise decisions in my life and be, or be, you know, less likely to be hurtful to myself or anyone else. And when I figured that out, when I started figuring out, oh, I can get up in those mountains and put on a backpack and go walk for two weeks, like something really good happens to me and I come back and I'm better at music than I was. And so I am certain as an outside outsider to your life that being in so much nature as a kid really, you know, and you touched on this before, like you were by yourself, didn't have a TV, didn't have stuff. You were dealing with like your spirit, like you and Jewel and her spirit. You weren't going to get like, you know, a PlayStation to distract yourself, you know? And um, like, how important is that to your education, but I guess to anyone's education in any field? I mean, particularly we're talking about music, but I can't imagine that, that being distracted from your inner self helps anybody find their means of expression. And like, I guess like just, can you speak on that for a second? Like how much that meant to you and continues to mean to you? Because I know you, it's not like, oh, I made money now. I'm going to go live in a penthouse in Manhattan and, you know, bring me some caviar. You know, you're, you're still like you, you know, I know you value the humility of being around something so much bigger, you know. I get weepy when I think about nature, you know, being raised the way I was. My mom left at eight. It's obviously super confusing and hard to have an abusive uh, single parent. But I had Alaska and this beautiful land, and we were so poor, but Alaska's land is so beautiful and overwhelming and huge that you feel small in the most beautiful way. I'd imagine it what it's like to have healthy parent attachment, you know, when you know your parent is in charge and making the good decisions and you can just relax and know you're held, you're small in a good way. That's how the land there made me feel. And I really was mothered by the land. And I mean that so genuinely, like 
I was loved. It just happened to be by a meadow. <laughs> it just happened to be by by going out in nature and just being moved to tears because it was so beautiful and you couldn't help but feel like you were part of something much more, much bigger than you. And the sense of interconnectedness was so overwhelming. The sense of interdependency was so overwhelming. And what a good teacher it was, was so visceral. Um, you know, I remember being really depressed one day and I was sitting on the edge of a bluff overlooking the ocean. And I sat there a very, very long time. The tides in Alaska are huge, really extreme. They go out a mile and come in a mile. And I sat there that whole time. It must have been seven hours. And it was one of the most like depressed moments I had had. And I don't know, as it was coming back in, it suddenly dawned on me how nothing's permanent. And I know that doesn't sound that <laughs> shocking, but for some reason it hit me that if you look at the culmination of all of the universe, the, the common denominators change and nothing stays the same forever. And how arrogant was it of me to think little old me alone and all the universe would be the only thing that stayed static, that my shitty mood, <laughs> that my sadness would be the only thing in all the universe that would never change. It was preposterous and disconnected and, and arrogant. And so now to this day, I use that. Sometimes the tide is just out. And I tell myself that, like, sometimes the tide's just out. And I call it buckling myself in. Like, I just have to buckle myself into my flesh, into my body, and stay there long enough because nature is change. God is change. And I can name a million things like that, that I learned how to be human from nature. And that's why it is still so important to me. It's how I relate to the world. It's how I relate to my creativity. Being able to have stillness and quiet and sit in the uncomfortable moments and explore the depths of you. It's sad to me that people don't have more of the opportunity to do that because it's healing. First of all, if you have trauma, get your ass in nature move to the country, do whatever you need to do, because it is medicine. It's the original, you know, they've learned with meditation and through connecting to the earth and even just grounding that it's releasing different neurochemicals that are natural antidepressants. It makes you feel better. It's just it's being able to be proven now, which is cool. But for me, it's it's massive. Um, and still, if I'm uninspired, I just have to get out in nature and, and it reinvigorates me. Yeah, I'm same. And, you know, it's, it's always have heard it in every note that you play and sing, you know, the, that infinite power. Once I was, like, going through a super sad, anxiety-ridden time full of, you know, self-doubt and all that, and I was having a similar thing. I, I remember I was up in Big Sur at the time, and I, like, went up, hiked up to the top of this mountain, and I was sitting up there, and I was so, like, down on myself, you know, like, just feeling like such a miserable piece of shit. And I, I was looking out and everything was so beautiful. And in the midst of all this grandeur, I felt myself get smaller and smaller until I just kind of disappeared to the point where I was just, there was no difference between me and that rock over there or me and that little tree stump or me and that leaf or me and the giant cosmos of the sky above me. And in that moment, I was like, those things are so beautiful and I'm the same as them. You know what I mean? And like those little moments, like you're talking about the impermanence of, you know, things, massive moving a mile long tide, like those lessons are so profound and you can, they're always there, you know, 
and I feel like, you know, as a musician and as an artist and as someone who is, you know, a creative, sometimes it can be weird because you're like, okay, well, I'm going to make this record and I want to get it done, you know, by May. And then, cause I'm going to go on a tour in March and you know what I mean? It's not yeah. just like, well, I'm going to, as I feel it, you know, I'm going to do something like we've, we have, we work. Yeah. And, and I think in, at any point in a young musician's or an old seasoned musician's career, you have to have that trust in nature. And you have to trust in that, you know, as the moon waxes and wanes and the tides come and go, so will your, you know, your desire and your yearning to express it, you know, in whatever medium you have. Yeah, I really find, you know, the difference to me between being a musician and it's creating and being a professional musician that now has a, a career and is paid to create. When you're the way I experience it, it was when I was just a musician writing songs and I wasn't discovered yet. I was doing something organic. You know, when we make music, we're contributing and partaking in nature and we're taking something from the natural world and we're creating something organic. It's of the natural world. And we we give it to people. And then when you become a professional musician, your job is to still do something organic, but in an inorganic environment. You know, now you're in a box and there's a structure and there's a timeline and there's people involved and there's formats and radio and a bunch of crazy shit. But your job is to somehow create enough structure to to block those things out, to work within those things because we're a professional and we have to. But you still have to create something organic. And when you don't, people don't respond. I mean, it's fascinating. And it's not to say we could make something organic and beautiful and it won't be popular. We've seen that a million times. But I really think that's that dichotomy, the paradoxical thing of being a professional musician is we have to figure out how to be organic in an inorganic environment. And in the 90s, you know, it was so about credibility and not being a sellout was just these major mantras, you know, of the 90s. And I watched a lot of young artists come onto the labels. And I was a young artist. I was just figuring my way, too. But a lot of them had a very, like, repugnant response to the business, which I get. But the problem is, is your art is your baby. You know, that's your baby. You, you owe it to your baby to protect your baby and put it in a good position where it will thrive. And if you don't know the lay of the land, you can't protect your baby. And so to me, I felt like I wanted to learn about the business. I wanted to learn about how record labels functioned. I wanted to learn what made budget decisions in record labels and what were they basing those things on? Because I felt like the more I knew about the business, the better mother I could be, the more protective I could be of my art. And that caused me to make really different decisions like you know, I got discovered when I was homeless and I had a huge bidding war over me and they offered me a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid. And I read that Don Passenheim book, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. And I read about advances and that you owe the money back through record sales and that people can get dropped when they don't ever pay off that debt. And I knew I was a folk artist at the height of, of grunge. And the odds of me making it were so slim that to me, that million dollars felt like a bounty on my little organic baby's head. And my baby wasn't even born yet. It was like trying to have fruit that I hadn't even grown a tree yet. I didn't even have a seed. And I was being paid for fruit that didn't even exist. And so for me, my whole thing was much more, I think, because I came from nature, I had a very agricultural approach to my 
music career. It was like, no, I have to create a fertile environment for this to thrive in. I can't leverage something that doesn't even exist or has grown yet. So turning down the front end, I took a really big back end. Um, you know, I used all the leverage I had to get the biggest back end. I think of maybe anybody that had been awarded to that point. And I made a very cheap record. And it was very simple and very honest. And it did fail. And then after two or three years, it finally took off. And without a shadow of a doubt, I would have been dropped had I taken that million dollar bounty and spent a ton of money on top of it. Smart. I'm curious too, just like visiting with you, like I've been doing this not as long as you, but a little while now. And again, like looking agriculturally, like every field has to go fallow. You don't have fruit growing 24 seven, 365 days a year. Now, our business does run as if we are a product. It wants it to be, you know, they want us to be productive all the time, but we are part of nature. I don't think, especially as a singer-songwriter, people that are having to write their music, I think we need these longer periods of nothingness. Absolutely. For me, it's been years. I take years sometimes. And then for me, developing as a human, I didn't want to, my fame got so big, it got so unexpected how famous I got. I couldn't handle it psychologically. I, I quit at the height of my career. I think it was right after hands. I quit for two years because I, I couldn't psychologically adjust and I was unwilling to have a nervous breakdown. But it wasn't looked at kindly. There weren't mental health. There wasn't even yeah. the word mental <laughs> yeah. health back in that time. Yeah. They were it was just like, like, oh, she's oh, unreliable. That was it. Yeah. I just got murdered by everybody yeah. for it. Yeah. And like, I guess she can't handle it. Or When really, I feel like it was such a powerful decision on my part. I was curious how you handled that. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely had, I mean, I think it's, I mean, for one, you're a woman, which makes it harder too, because automatically you're looked at as being more fragile, um, even though you're making like a past self-empowering decision to like go and take care of yourself so you can, you know, not become a, a an idiot, you know? But for me, yeah, no, I, I've had the the fortune and the, and the, you know, difficulty of working in a communal setting, like being part of a four-man group. So it's, you know, we all kind of share the burdens. But I've, you know, I once said, two years, I'm done, see ya. Like, I'm not, you know, I can't do it. I've done it before, I'll do it again. You know, and I love my band and I love music, but I know that I need to be sane and I need to grow in other ways outside of the structure that the um, being on the wheel presents. But um, I just kind of want to go back again to get to music education a little bit. And it's funny because I, before we did this podcast today, last night, my producer sent me a thing about Jewel. And I was like, I know everything about Jewel. Don't send me a fucking sheet on Jewel. (laughs) I know Jewel. But you went to the Interlochen Music Academy. And I never knew that about you. Yeah. I thought everything came from like planting potatoes in Homer, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, um... So when you went there, was there academic instruction about music? And you didn't go long, right? I got to go two winters. Um, I right. went to the, I attended the, the school portion, not the summer camps. I got a partial scholarship and it was a vocal scholarship. Um, I was a bar singer and my audition tape had to have an aria. And I was like, what the fuck is an aria? I'd only see it written, you know, I was like, airy, airy, airy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I can't read music, you know. And there was a local college and there was a music class at the college. And I went to the professor as like a 15 year old. And I just said, can you help me learn the song? And I can't read music. So I need you to, would you record the melody for me? And so he sang the melody into a little tape recorder and I learned it. 
and um, he knew a guitar player, a classical guitar player who, you know, and that was my, I think my first time maybe in the studio was recording this little French aria. Um, it was French. And so he, he just spoke the words for me and I learned it by ear. And I was thinking there was just no effing way I was going to get into this place for like real singers. Uh, and I got a partial scholarship. And then my town like raised $10,000 for me. And I got to go away to the school. Showed up like a wild fucking animal. I mean, I was already living on my own. I was not well raised. I've never walked out of a bathroom up to this point with my pants zipped up. I mean, I grew up in an outhouse where the goal was just to get outside quickly. <laughs> and I remember, like, I had enough money to get to Detroit, and I hitchhiked from Detroit up to campus, which is so crazy now that I look back at it. And I walked through campus, and there's a lot of real concerned looks. And I'm like, what's wrong? Like, why is everybody like, staring at me? And somebody comes up and she goes, um, ma'am, you need to go directly to the dean's office. And I was like, why? And and I go in there and he goes, give me your knife. And I go, what? He goes, you're wearing a knife. Give me your knife. And I was like, well, I, everybody, I mean, that's how, who doesn't wear a knife? Like, I didn't understand. <laughs> and I really threatened this very prestigious, you know, school. I showed up with a really large skinning knife on my belt. I just didn't know any better. Um, and he, I, I gave it to him really confused. He goes, where are you from? And I was like, Alaska. And he was like, <laughs> me and that poor Dean spent a lot of time together because I was just so out of my element. And yeah. um, my, my vocal teacher, Nicole Filibosian, uh, was wonderful. I, because I didn't read music, she helped me learn everything by ear. Um, in, my, in my classes, she'd record the arias or the things I needed to by ear. Uh, I didn't take any music theory classes. I could have. It just wasn't my interest. Um, and I got really into visual art. And it was originally just to get a job. I was modeling for the class uh, in my leotard and got more and more into visual art. And so I ended up, uh, they didn't let you double major. Uh, they didn't let you study more than one thing. But I felt like I had one year. And this was like the cream of the crop, best teachers in the world. And so I remember like taking theater and dance and visual art. And I worked, like I didn't kept take a lunch. I would work and build classes through lunches. And the dean would pull me aside and be like, you can't do this. You're taking on too much work. And I was just like, you, you can't, this, this might be my only year to get this kind of instruction. And I, you have to give me this opportunity. And he did, um, thankfully. Uh, but my deal with Nicole, my, my voice teacher, was she let me skip my voice lessons so that I could take the visual art, the sculpting class, as long as I showed up and did my recitals and did them well. And so she would record them for me. I would learn them in my free time. Um, and, and it did help me sing better. I learned to sing in my high voice. I learned like kind of a correct placement to get my falsetto developed. I had only ever been a bar singer and was a belter prior to that. Um, and that added a real strength to my voice I never mm. had explored before. Um, but I was definitely the kid in the choir class who was ear singing just off of people. Like as soon yeah. as they sang it, I could mimic it immediately because the the pages were always just gibberish to me. Yeah, that's so cool. So it just gave you like another, I mean, physically helped you learn how to understand your voice better and gave you more colors to paint with. Yeah. And she, yeah. she believed in me, which was so, you know how that is, you know, you find those people, yeah. you're just so insecure and empty and hungry and starved for love and and you you know she she liked my voice and she believed in my me and that was just so 
and she was trying to help me. She wanted me to take all those other classes and oh, great. and rules for me. And it was just amazing. It's great. But that is when I learned guitar. Like I learned guitar then because I didn't know for uh, holiday breaks, you had to leave campus. My whole thing was like, I'll just stay at the dorm. I couldn't afford to go home or anywhere. Yeah. And so that became a real problem for me was like, what the F do I do on these Christmas breaks and these holiday breaks when everybody's family's coming for them? And I don't have anywhere. I don't have a family. And so one of the, the breaks, I decided that I would go hitchhike across the country and hop trains and hitchhike through Mexico. And I would street sing to make money and I didn't play guitar. And so I learned I had somebody in school teach me like A minor, C, G and D. In that order, I couldn't go out of order because I just, I didn't know how to get my little fingers to do it yet. And I couldn't learn other people's songs because I, you know, and I've always had a really bad ear. To this day, I cannot hear even songs I've written. If I've forgotten them, I can't listen to a tape and tell if I'm capoed and it's a G. I just, for some reason, my ear doesn't work that way. And so it was easier to write and improvise. I grew up improvising in the bars. And so for that spring break, I think I was 16, I just started hoboing across the country and making up lyrics, improvising as people walked by, making, you know, lyrics up about their shoes and what they were wearing and the city I was seeing. And um, after two weeks, you know, did hitchhike through Mexico without being murdered. So that was a success. Made it back to school. And I had my first song and that was Who Will Save Your Soul. And that was that first year at Interlochen. And I was just, I mean, it was, I was bit, you know, like the songwriting bug got me. It took my poems and kind of this inherent love of singing and mashed them together. And, and so that was your first year and then you, you hoboed across the country. Um, guy, I just keep imagining you with like a broomstick with like a little sack <laughs> on the end, like in cartoons, hopping freights and shit. But <laughs> so you did that, then you went back for another, another season of Interlochen. Yeah, I got a full scholarship that second mm, year and I just awesome. doubled down on like the double major double minor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just going crazy it's so cool that at every point in every story that you're telling the underlying theme that i hear is at every point you're doing this because you want to do it no one's telling you to like you'll be a success if you do this and that you'll do you gotta practice you better practice if you're gonna be good you gotta you know at every point you are just like want to lose yourself in the creative process, just the vibration of being in the moment, making the music, and how do I do this more and better and more profoundly to express myself? And I feel like in a world that is so performance-based, like you said, when you were really little, it wasn't like your favorite part was getting on stage and being a little cutie beauty pageant girl. You wanted to get down and get down to business and make the music. And that's always been striking about you. You know, because when you're playing music, you just get down to the core and the magic of the thing and the truth. And that's a big lesson for young musicians to hear, you know. And at every point, that's what you're doing in your education of yourself and your understanding of the world. After the final break, Jewel shares some hard-won lessons from coming up as a female musician in the grunge 90s and how she's currently embracing what one critic dubbed her BDE era of music making. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I also was thinking when you got to Interlaken, I know like when you were young, you're doing all the cover songs with your dad and you're having your understanding of how that works. And you must have started to hear lots of different music when you got to Interlaken. I mean, the students must have been listening to all kinds of stuff um, from arias on down to what year was that when you were there? 91. Uh-huh. 90, 91, 92. Damn, that's just like right before I met you. Yeah. Like, what were you listening to and what were you thinking when you were hearing popular culture music? Yes. Um, I heard Joni Mitchell for the first time. I heard Neil Young for the first time. It was in the periphery. It was like kids in the art studio were playing music, you know, and I was like, what is this? And I remember it being Neil Young. I remember hearing Needle and the Damage done, you know, for the first time. And that's why I wrote Little Sister. And if you listen to Little Sister, the guitar part, it was me trying to imitate the Neil Young part, but it sounds so different because I was so bad at it. (laughs) But it's about drug use and, you know, very directly inspired by that song. Um, Obviously, Joni just is like a big old shot to your soul. I think it's a religious experience for all those that that fall in love with her. It was still real patchy. It was just kind of whatever I happened to hear. You know, for me, I wasn't raised listening to music as a habit. And I really believe it's a habit. Like, I think people that grew up relating to the world through hearing music that's like a lifelong habit. To this day, I still have it quiet in my house. I'm not, I don't like listening to the radio and I need my friends to turn me on to music. I need my friends to be like, Jewel, fucking check this out. Check this thing out. And I'm so appreciative when they do, but I, I grew up reading. And so I'm a real avid reader and I haven't, um, I need, I have to rely on my friends to turn me on to great stuff. Mm. When you were young and you were writing, when you said writing, like I, I think I said, oh, is she writing words or is she writing music structure or, you know, coming up with rhythms or, and all the time, you know, you're writing words from a young age and you're reading. Do you separate out like the literary part of your creativity and the musical part? Like are those two different things or is it all one thing? It's one thing in the sense that what inspired me to write were writers, like novelists, poets, and philosophers. And specifically the writers that never use their art as propaganda to make themselves seem more perfect. 
you know, being a kid smelled like horse poop. You know, kids would tease me that I smelled like a ranch or horse poop or things like that. I didn't feel, you know, beautiful or normal or part of society. And you look at magazines and it was further reinforcing this otherness. And so artists that use their art to make no otherness, where they shared their flaws, it felt, again, it almost moves me to tears just talking about it. But like Bukowski, reading Bukowski, he was just so honest about the, the vulgarity of his own life and the heroicism in his willingness to live it. Anais Nin, her journals were just that way, just ballsy honesty that you just, you can't believe anybody would admit it out loud. And it was just so beautifully expressed. Her writing was so, so incredible. She was so intelligent and just so honest. That's what I wanted to do. Like, I wanted to write that honestly. I wanted to take the skin off. I, I wanted people to feel the blood in my veins. And so my writing has always had this very visceral, emotional. And then when I started layering music, which came later, a melody, for me, all performance is just about like, I, I want to take my skin off and I want you to be inside my soul and vice versa. I want it to be a really visceral, immediate experience. Um, but that said, my poetry has never really made it into music. You know, my songwriting is, I'd say, poetic. But I've never successfully taken a poem and transcribed that into music. My poetry writing is very separate. It was short story fiction. It was essays. It was just always very separate. Um, but the soul, you know, what made me want to write, that's the approach I took to songwriting, too. And do you, how about in terms of the discipline of, I saw this cartoon a little while ago, and it made me laugh. It was like right when I was, I was you know, trying to do some writing and it was this cartoon and it was just like a pep talk to writers and this writer's standing up and he's saying, there's a big group of writers. He's going, who are we? And they all yell out writers. And he goes, what do we do? And they go, we write. And they're all raising their hands. And then he goes, and when are we going to write? And they all go, oh, gosh, my God. You know what I mean? Like the act of just fucking sitting down and doing it is really difficult for a lot of people. And I wonder like your relationship to that and the discipline, like, do you write every day? And a lot of people have those kind of disciplines about like Stravinsky, he composed every day, put on a suit, went to the piano from 12 to five, he composed, you know, like, I wonder, do you have disciplines like that? And does that kind of structure help you create? I don't have that same discipline. Um, when I was young, it was just what I wanted to do all the time, 24 seven. Um, when I became a mom that really changed, I didn't have that free time, you know, all that staying up till three in the morning, mm -mm, you can get usually asked to bed, you know, you have a baby to get up with. So that really changed it for mm. me. Um, becoming a mom, I had to build different disciplines. Long periods of time will go by without writing music. Poetry has always been consistent. It's not because I had a schedule. It just, it's just the one art form that probably is m my way of relating to the world. I write poetry every day. I don't make myself mm. do it. But it's the thing I've been the most loyal to or the most faithful to. Now, there are periods where I've gone without it. If I'm deeply sad, I can't write. It's really, really hard for me. But and you've never had to make yourself do it your whole life. You just do it. Writing songs is different. Like, I just put out a new album called Freewheeling Woman. And mm -hmm. my whole career, I've been really prolific. So I have thousands of songs in my back catalog. Yeah. And these back songs let me never have to write an album from scratch. So even if it was a country album, I've had hundreds of songs in my back catalog. If it was a pop album, I've had hundreds of songs in my back catalog. 
But for this record, I wanted it to be from scratch. And I've never had to write one from scratch in my entire 30-year career. Yeah. And that was hard. Like, I see why middle-aged artists do a shit ton of drugs to, like, develop a new sound. Because doing it sober and working through all, like, the older versions of myself and the doubt of, like, well, I'll never write a song as good as Hands or you know, what's happening now on the radio and the chorus has to come 30 seconds in and just, it's so hard to get that out of your head and do something new and not new that's like reactionary, like I got to do something new, like you have a chip on your shoulder, but really authentically new. That was work. And I wrote over 200 songs to get the 20 or the 10 that I like for this album. So that was just discipline. Yeah, that was just, I wrote every day. I wrote songs every day. And if they weren't good enough, I wrote more. So cool. I feel like it's like as we grow and I, you know, I, for one, love getting older. I really like it. Like I just want to get older and older and older. I really feel like a success. The more I get older, like I'm alive. But I feel like as a musician getting older, the number one thing is to remain a student. Like when you're little and you're first trying to understand how to do anything like how do i make my voice crack into that yodel like how do i improve to get better at this thing that I, that i love doing i love growth i do think arrogance is the antithesis to greatness you have to always want to be learning and hungry and be a fan and be ingesting i think that writers have to ingest a tremendous amount to be able to convert that and let that trickle through your filter to be have any kind of output So I take those quiet times and the years between albums really seriously to keep reading and those types of things. You know, my my goal is so ambitious, right? But when I got discovered at 18, you know, when you and I first met, my goal was to be one of the best singer-songwriters of all time. I mean, (laughs) why not have a goal? (laughs) And you don't, that doesn't just happen, right? That means I won't know if I've accomplished that till the day I die. It means I have to be working at that every day. I have to be trying to get better every day. That's just my own little bar in my only he- in my own head, and nobody knows if I'm winning it but me. And so you have to have a plan, or I've had to have a plan. And then I've also had to kind of see what am I up against. Like, there's such great singer-songwriters. I mean, just luminaries of just greatness. And yet when I look at the female singer-songwriters that I believe punch pound for pound with their male counterparts, they really can't sell tickets the way the men can. That was kind of a bummer to see. And the women that have become iconic, you know, iconic level, whatever, musicians, you know, you might say Madonna or Cher, they're just not the type of artist that I am. I'm just kind of much more of a singer songwriter than, than say, whatever that is, maybe more pop. Um, I admire both of them. It just wasn't, I knew how I was going to be showing up in my writing. And so that was a really interesting thing. And it's still a really interesting thing. You know, this business isn't kind to aging, but it's very unkind to women aging. Like it's a whole other animal. Absolutely. And I remember, you know, my first album isn't a dumb album. And I remember sitting there in a little group of like songwriters with press and they'd ask, you know, I love Beck. They'd be like, Beck, why'd you write? I'm a loser, baby. So why don't you kill me? You know, they'd really get into it. And they're like, Jewel. And I thought they would ask me about Who'll Save Your Soul, which isn't a shabby lyric. <laughs> and they were like, Jewel, what's your favorite nail color? And I was like, damn, this is, it's going to be hard, like, to to really be sort of taken seriously as a female singer-songwriter. And 
It doesn't keep you from doing great work. It's just an interesting thing. So as I made this album, writing it from scratch, having to get out of my head all these ideas and past versions of yourself and all this crappy information and get at something really real and authentic, um, pushing yourself, pushing myself, and then finally going on tour. I haven't toured in eight years, probably, since I became a mom. Like, I really, like, toned everything down to be a single mom. I didn't know what it would be like. I knew I invested in myself these last seven years. I know I kept learning. I know I kept reading. I knew I kept ingesting. And writing that record was really hard, you know, 200 songs to get these 12 that I like. It was so rewarding to go on stage after such a big break, you know, and what I believe is an investment in my humanity and my mothering. But it's a risk, right? It's a risk musically. It's a risk career-wise. I just let seven years of momentum go. You don't just get that shit back. You do pay a price. And so to be able to step on stage and really, I really firmly believe that the psychological work I did the last seven years of healing, you know, we didn't even get into like my mom and all the shit show of my life, but I had a lot of healing to do. It's like my body or my creativity is this river. And it's the same river. But for the last seven years of healing, I moved some boulders around and I smoothed some cliffs out and some angles and some curves. It affected the sound of my voice. I'm convinced. I am wildly a better singer seven years later. I'm a better performer. And it felt so good to be a woman standing on stage my age. And I felt empowered. And I didn't feel like I had to be a little, you know, cutie tootie with a mini skirt trying to be young. And I just felt like a badass. And I know that sounds really arrogant to say, but it felt so good. The best. <laughs> fight that fight, you know, and to stand there and be like, my record may never be popular. No people may see this beyond the audience in front of me, but I fucking brought it. And it was an energy and a level that I am proud of. And that felt really good. That's so great. You know, I kind of like, I feel like, for a lot of people, if you're able to go past a surge of popularity and to continue as a music career, it's only going to happen if, one, if you're humble and you're really a music student, and, and two, you, you dedicate yourself to your craft. You know what I mean? Which means dedicating yourself to the craft means also going to be a mom when it's time to be a mom. Like Patti Smith, you know, who also I did this podcast with and is my dear friend, like she... Mm. When she became a mom, she fucked it all off. She was at the peak of her success. She had, you know, horses, big, you know, because the night, huge hit. I'm going to be a mom in, in suburban Michigan for 10 years. And then came back and started doing a career again. You know, but like, it's that same thing. And because you, you come back when your life, you know, it's organic to who you are as a human being, there's realness in what you do and that will always serve you and people will always connect with that. But like beyond that, I think in a way, like in kind of from what you just said, it's like freeing too, right? Like I'm up here. I don't need to be up here because I'm a cute little pop star who can also sing and write a song, but just because I'm a fucking badass and here I am, you know, and that's me. not arrogant. That's the truth. You yeah. are a badass. I got to feel it, you know, in my body. And like, it's good to be this age. I'm with you. Like, I love growing older and I love, you know, it's why I called the album Free Willing Woman. Like, I, yeah. I fought to be the human I am. It wasn't given to me. I could have crumbled under bitterness the same way you yeah. could have to fight the good fight 
of being more loving, more kind, more healthy, more resilient, and trusting that your art will also be that, which you yeah. work at too. But that was a really satisfying energy. It's funny. One of my favorite reviews of the show was like, Jules sings with big dick energy. And I was like, that's kind of a, I mean, it's a really bizarre, <laughs> bizarre review. <laughs> but you don't see many women planting themselves, playing electric guitar, bringing it with full empowerment, you know? And I was like, I was really proud of it. It felt good. <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing to see. <laughs> I have one last question for you, which is to young musicians starting out who, you know, really want to grow and maybe, you know, be a professional musician or just have a life as a musician, what advice do you have for them? My favorite Joseph Campbell quote is, it's the privilege of a lifetime to be yourself. You can't be popular. It's impossible. You know, it's like pushing rope. You just can't force popularity. And if you can, if you can contrive it, you're going to pay a heavy price because you'll have contrived something and it won't necessarily be authentic. And the celebrities that have made inauthentic celebrity that's out of alignment maybe with who they believe their true self is, they pay the biggest mental health price that I've seen. It's so hard to discover who you are. It's a privilege to be yourself and fight for that. What's unique about you is, is the most uh, precious thing about you. As an artist, I, I can't remember who said this quote, but it's one of my favorites. It said, pay very close attention to what the critics hate about you and do it more because it's probably also what's the most special about you. And it's kind of a great thing. Like for me, I don't know what you were critiqued for. For me, it was like I was too earnest. I was too sincere. I was a Pollyanna. I was hopeful and, and sincere at the height of like a really cynical era. And they murdered me for it. But it's so me. <laughs> and that ended up being what my my career is. Uh, and so I would just say it's the privilege to be yourself and fight for that right. Don't give up. Don't let some person talk you out of the right to be yourself. Like fight for knowing who it is. Spend time with yourself. Date yourself. Figure out who you are, what makes you tick. That's the funnest part. Thanks, Jewel. Thanks, Fleely. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. I love you so much. Likewise. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jewel. As always, thank you for listening to This Little Light, a podcast that exists to benefit the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music, a nonprofit music school based in Los Angeles, California. This Little Light is a presentation of Cadence 13, executive produced by Flea, Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, and parallel partners Ken Cow, Nicholas Gonda, and me, Jocelyn Florence. The show's lead producer is Julia Smith, with engineering by Ryan Martz. Our show's original theme music is composed by Flea himself. Special thanks to Chris LaSalle, Alex Barron, Ian Turner, and Jennifer Ray and her entire team at the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music. Listen and follow This Little Light, a presentation of Cadence 13, on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.